Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 124. Have you wanted to understand recursion and how to use it in Python? Are you familiar with the call stack and how it relates to tracebacks? This week on the show, Al Swigert talks about his new book, The Recursive Book of Recursion. Recursion is one of those concepts held as a tenet of high-level computer science priesthood. Al explains the fundamentals of writing recursive functions and a critical missing piece in understanding how they operate, the call stack. After completing his research for the book, he concluded that it's a technique that you should understand but rarely use. He also shares the few cases where recursion is an appropriate solution. Along the way, we talk about directed acyclic graphs, solving mazes, exploring file trees, and creating fractal images. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Al. Welcome back. Hello. I feel like I need to uh, invest in some jackets for my five-timers club. Um, <laughs> has, has it been this five times is on this Not show? yet. No, this is the fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's great to be on this show. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm excited to have you back. And you've been working on a new book. You kind of hinted at it before. And then I think we talked a little bit about it at PyCon that you were working on this, that it was, uh, you know, coming up close. And so maybe we could set up a show. So I'm excited to have you here and talk about your the uh, Recursive Book of Recursion, which is should be out by the time this comes out. Yeah, Amazon has it as coming out on August 16th, but uh, right now you can buy it directly from the publisher, No Starch Press, at nostarch.com. It's really nice when you, when you pre-order a print book from them because they'll also give you the PDF and Kindle uh, eBooks for free yeah. without any DRM locking it down. So you can just put it on whatever device that you have. That is nice. I, I really like that ability <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to kind of use it in, in multiple places. So Yeah, owning the content that you buy is quite a nice thing. Uh, How novel. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe just a quick thing on it. You had a talk at North Bay Python in 2018 that covers a lot of the initial sort of concepts here. And it, what it made me think about was, did that talk inspire the book or was it more of sort of a starting point for you it was sort of a starting point and wow that was 2018 was it <laughs> um, because i i had the idea for the book and then i thought like well i can just make uh like a little pycon talk about it and uh, i originally i thought like okay well this this book on recursion how much can one write about recursion? This will probably be like 100, <laughs> 150 pages. Yeah, uh, I can knock this thing out in six months. It'll be fine. And here we are in uh, four years later. And okay, it's finally coming out. That's great. It turns out that there's quite a bit that you can write uh, about recursion. And 
The publisher also thought it'd be great if I just threw in a, a lot of project ideas. So I have a lot of like fractal drawing programs, this uh, Drost image creator. Yeah, it goes back to a pretty common theme for you, in yeah. books, which I think yeah. is awesome. Yeah, including projects. Yeah, to paraphrase JFK, I do these things not because they are easy, but because I thought they would be easy. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I think it's very interesting uh, topic because one of the things that you kind of hint on initially is those of us like myself who didn't go through computer science classes uh, officially and maybe are trying to catch up on the sly, <laughs> see these topics and and think about them and kind of want to know, well, how much of that do I need to know uh, as a Python programmer? And I, I really feel like the book is answering a lot of that. And also kind of the idea that if you're looking for a gig and potentially facing an interview, this is like a common sort of place that you've seen that. Had you ever had that experience of a job interview or they ask you like a recursion kind of question? I don't think I've personally had that happen to me, uh, but I do know that sort of recursion is one of those topics that do get brought up in job interviews. And in fact, one of the ways that I try to market the book is saying like, well, you know, you'll need to know this for coding interviews. But recursion is one of those things where no programmer will ever actually need to know it, but every programmer should know it and no programmer should ever actually use it. Uh, so it's <laughs> paradoxes within paradoxes, which is appropriate enough, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to dive in with like kind of like an initial like the concept? Because I like using this forum of the podcast as a way to kind of feel free to ask any kind of questions. Um, and I think, you know, the first one would be, okay, well, what is recursion? Okay, so what is recursion? And a lot of people are really intimidated by this topic, but I feel that a lot of people have this intuitive sense of it. And I, I give a broad definition of a recursive thing is something whose definition includes itself. Uh, the this is going to be very interesting how I can describe this on a podcast because it's often a very visual <laughs> yeah. thing. But uh, if you've ever seen the Serpinski Triangle or if you've ever played the Legend of Zelda games and you have the Triforce, it's a triangle that has an upside down triangle inside of it. And that forms three new triangles on the corners. And if you just keep putting upside down triangles inside of those triangles, you'll form Serpinski Triangles. Uh, in those three corners. And then now you have nine triangles and you can make Serpinski triangles out of that. Yeah. And so this produces a fractal image and a fractal is a recursive shape. So really you could say that, well, a Serpinski triangle is uh, a triangle that contains three Serpinski triangles. It's, it's a thing whose definition includes itself. You could also think of sort of that movie Inception where people are having dreams while they are dreaming and then while they are dreaming again, yeah. <laughs> and, a, and a lot of people start making recursion jokes that uh, sort of turn into infinite loop jokes more than recursion jokes. And yeah. everybody feels the need to, to start making uh, recursive jokes anytime the subject is brought up. <laughs> but for programming, a recursive function is a function that calls itself. And you might want to think like, well, why, why would I ever do that? And yeah. I, I agree. Why would you want to do that? And if you try to do that, you'll uh, just get a weird error message 
which is actually a Stack Overflow, which is where the website gets its name from. Yeah, I like your your example that that shortest one is is uh I think easily repeatable on a podcast the that you would just oh yeah you just do def shortest you know and then your your brackets colon and then call in the next line inside the function shortest with a pair of parentheses and then try to run that <laughs> yeah it's it's a recursive function it contains one line of code that calls the recursive function and. It does nothing useful except demonstrate what a stack overflow is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it turns out that there's some useful things that you can do that uh, recursion as a programming technique is really suited for. But also there's lots of things that I, I feel like a lot of programmers just use recursion to feel smart and make their code very convoluted and hard to understand. And then they just call that elegant code, which I would not agree with that. But to really to understand recursion, there's a couple concepts that we have to go into that, you know, if if you're just a programmer, like making a a to do list, and you're you're starting out, and you want to make web apps or something like this, you, you might skip over these fundamental computer science topics, even though you already understand and use them, but you've never really thought about them specifically. And that's what functions are and what stacks are. So I like to think of functions as mini programs that your program can can run. You know, if you think about it, a function has some code. Yeah. And whenever your program wants to run that code, you can call that function. So you can make your own functions or you can call the functions in some software library or some other module that other people have written. And it's really nice to have functions because otherwise, every time you want to run that code, you would have to copy and paste that code over and over again. And if you ever want to make a change to that to fix some bug or to add a feature, you would have to make that change every place that you copied and pasted that code. And that's just a logistical nightmare. You might not make changes everywhere you need to. You might have other things. You know, things can get out of sync pretty fast that way. So functions are great to just have the code in one place. And also functions can call other functions as well. So it's a great way to reuse code that way. But the the one thing that I I feel that a, a lot of people sort of you know, they know this, but they don't know that they know this. And that is that function calls aren't really one way trips for the program execution. Like if you call a function, the the execution doesn't just move to the function, but also when that function returns, it goes back to the line of code that calls it. And when you have uh, like a function A that calls function B that calls function C, when C returns, it doesn't just go back to the global scope of the program, it returns to function B. And then when function B returns, it returns back to function A, and then function A returns back to the global scope. So you're really climbing that sort of stack that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and a stack is how your programming language interpreter or or the code that the compiler adds to your program. A stack is a data structure that's used to keep track of all of these things. And so then I have to go into what stacks are. And if you've ever used a Python list, you sort of used a, a stack already. In fact, yeah, yeah. If, if you just had, uh, if you have a Python list and you only ever use the append and pop methods to put something at the end of the list or remove something from the, from the end of the list, that's essentially using a list as a stack. And, and you can only examine the last item in the list. So actually, it's 
it's a lot more restrictive than a list is. And so you might wonder like, well, why would you want to use that? Why wouldn't you want to just use a list? And and that goes down into computer architecture and, and machine language where the, the programming constructs are a lot more simpler. And we've just built up, you know, we've used these simple concepts to build up elaborate things like Python lists or Python dictionaries, which are so much easier to use when you're actually making an application, you know, something that actually is uh, useful instead of just a bunch of <laughs> theoretical computer science stuff. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I thought about with stacks that your, your, your talk shows and definitely the book gets into in that, that I thought was really interesting that you talked about the stack overflow, um, not to derail you, but I was wondering about something as you ran this program, which was this, this sort of shortest thing that we were just talking about before, where shortest is calling, shortest is calling, shortest is calling, shortest and, and so forth. And then you know, you get the error at the end of that, and then it'll basically say that this ran 900 and <laughs> uh, whatever, 96 times, and then there's like four times above it that it's showing in this traceback of the error. Yes. And I didn't really put two and two together for a while that that's actually, when you have an error and it's showing this idea, it's showing the stack, you know, or at least a portion of it, like the most recent calls, if you will, that are in it. And then, you know, in this case, it would actually show that I, I guess Python has like a limit, <laughs> right? It's a thousand. Right, right. And and that's uh, kind of an artificial limit. Uh, just, wow, how much history should I go into? Oh, I don't know um, if you have to go that far. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, even functions themselves are constructs that we kind of take for granted. But originally with, you know, if you're just writing code in assembly, you don't necessarily really have functions. You just have what is essentially a go-to instruction, you just tell the uh, yeah. execution like, okay, when you're done here, if this condition is true, jump to this other address in memory and start running the rest of the program from there. And why this was sort of such a nightmare to debug is that your program would crash at some point and you would have no idea how it got there. There was no, There's no traceback because there is no call stack because there are no functions. And... So having functions is really nice because then you can at least sort of see like, okay, this function called this function that called this function, and that led me here. So then you can sort of, well, trace back exactly to what the original problem is. Uh, whereas if you just have go to, you have none of that context. It's sort of like you uh, were leaving a trail of breadcrumbs behind you. And then you look back and you realize that, uh, nope, all those breadcrumbs uh, were eaten by a squirrel or something. They're all gone. And you have no idea right. where you are or how you got there. Or the person you were following was teleported somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I believe this is the big thing with structured programming was was adding functions. And it, it's so much uh, nicer than than just having a bunch of go-to instructions everywhere. This would be called spaghetti code because the path that the execution took with all these go-to statements was just like strung all around over and under it itself. And you couldn't really make <laughs> yeah. heads or tails of it. And so the traceback is really nice. And, and what you're looking at is essentially information in the call stack of when that error happened, because the traceback will say, oh, a function A called function B called function C, which then caught, ran this line of code that caused the problem. And yeah, the the call stack is a stack data structure that keeps track of that. And, and so just to go back a little bit, so a stack is a data structure. You can think of it like a list, except you can put things, you can put data on the stack one at a time. We call it pushing data onto the top of the stack. 
And then you can pop data off of the top of the stack to retrieve it later. So it's it's sort of like a, a very restricted list where instead of the end of the list, you have the top of the stack. And, and we call it a, a phylo data structure because the first value that you push onto the stack will be at the bottom of the stack. So it'll be the last item you take out. So first in, last out. Okay. Is, is how that happens. And um, this is, a, you know, a stack is pretty much one of the simplest data structures you can have in programming. It's just a, a, a large contiguous area of memory, and you just need to have a pointer at the beginning of the stack and a pointer at the end of the stack. So it doesn't take up a lot of memory either, which, which is really important for you know, embedded computing, but also just, you know, back in the days where 64K was a lot of memory. And, and so the call stack, which is completely invisible, by the way, you, you can't like look at your source code and see like, oh, this is where the call stack is, is adding these function calls to, to the call stack and things like that, because all of this is handled in the background automatically for you. And it's, it's one of those blessings and curses that it's really convenient to have functions, but it's also hiding away this detail that you might need to know about if you know something goes wrong and you have to debug a program and and i feel like the main reason recursion is so uh, <laughs> dreaded and and so intimidating to a lot of people is because i feel i i sat down and i thought okay why is recursion so difficult people are are notoriously uh, fearful of recursion and i think if you type into google recursion is and then you just let Google autocomplete. It'll say like recursion is confusing. Recursion is uh, bad. I remember is <laughs> one of them. And because the whole idea is is kind of silly. Like okay, yeah, you have this recursive function that calls itself, and then it calls itself, and it calls itself. Eventually, we're going to run out of the memory allocated for the stack, which then causes a stack overflow. And and if you have a compiled program from a language like C. This could cause it to crash, but Python being an interpreted language, it keeps track of this also for you. And so it has this artificial limit built in of 1000 function calls. And it basically says, hey, if you have a function that calls in our function that calls in our function, and this keeps happening, and none of those functions are returning, and that happens a 1000 times, something's gone wrong, I'm going to just shut down the program and give you this nice Python traceback. Because otherwise, your operating system will probably, it'll crash for real. And the operating system will then say like, <laughs> yeah. uh, system internal corruption, uh, sys stack, blah, blah, blah. And then some hexadecimal numbers or something like that. And, and with Python, you can even increase this limit if you really need it. I mean, it's easy for, for us to sit here and say like, nobody will ever need more than a thousand function calls without returning uh, as part of their normal program running and then somebody will do that and so it's like okay we can increase this i think on on my windows 10 laptop i've increased it to about like 2700 mm. before the operating system will start kicking in and i like really have caused an actual stack overflow and the operating system has crashed my python program instead of the python interpreter doing that so it's just a you have like a program that's super complex that that needs to go on that large of a journey oh no it was just the stack overflow testing program okay. <laughs> i mean yeah like all my normal programs you know you you might have functions calling other functions and and so on but like what maybe a dozen or so okay uh the the thing that causes a stack overflow isn't a bunch of function calls but function calls and you're not returning from the functions yeah, yeah. they're all 
you're creating this tower that's ready to yeah, because <laughs> every time you call a function, you are pushing new data about that function call onto the call stack. And then when the function returns, it's it's popping that off of it. So it's it's constantly like growing and shrinking the the call stack. And usually, you know, 99% of the times when you've caused a stack overflow, it is because of some bug that has resulted in your recursive function calling itself over and over again uh, out of control. Yeah. Hence why you're saying that <laughs> not only is it kind of hard to understand sort of just looking at the code, but it's easy for you to write yourself into that situation. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, a lot of a lot of programmers kind of get a kick out of, you know, once they understand this this kind of complicated topic, uh, they just want to use it everywhere. And it, and it makes you feel really smart to have this recursive algorithm uh, working. And and so another part of when I was writing this book, because I, I looked around and I saw like, well, there's there's all these bad recursion tutorials and they all seem to be just copying each other. And I really thought like, hmm. what makes recursion hard to understand? And I said, oh, okay, people never really talk about the call stack and they they just, it's all implied. And and so, you know, that's confusing. There's There's a whole critical section of this concept that isn't even being addressed or, or pointed out. So that's confusing. And then I also thought like, well, what is recursion actually good for? Yeah, that's what I was wondering about too. Yeah, yeah it, there's, there's <laughs> two examples that I feel like every recursion tutorial uses over and over again, and it's factorial and Fibonacci. Factorial is, uh, is when you basically have a series of multiplications, five exclamation mark, which that's how you write it out. It would be five factorial. That is equivalent to five times four times three times two times one. So, you know, this, this is used in mathematics. It's not very common in just, you know, day-to-day -day arithmetic. Uh, hopefully you're not using this to calculate your taxes because factorial numbers uh, get pretty big pretty fast. Yeah, um, exactly. But, uh, you know, if, if you think about it, there is sort of a recursive nature here because yeah i'll, I'll use a much uh, smaller example so three factorial is three times two times one and two factorial is two times one so really you could think about it as okay well three factorial is just three times two factorial right which is two times one and if you just generalize this the factorial of any number in is just that number in multiplied by factorial of in minus one Again, it's sort of like, oh, okay, well, now you have this recursive definition. If you wrote a factorial function, it would call the factorial function just with n minus one. Now, you can't have this call itself forever, of course. And so then uh, eventually it gets down to one, and the factorial of one is simply one. And this is what we call the base case. It's the, the set of circumstances where your recursive function stops making recursive function calls to itself. And uh, the other cases are called recursive cases, and that's when the function does call itself. And every single... This is another thing that I feel like is is not pointed out, even though it is kind of obvious when you, when you say it out loud. Every recursive function needs to have at least one base case, because otherwise it'll keep calling itself and never stop, and then it'll cause a stack overflow. Yep. And it also needs to have at least one recursive case, Otherwise, it never actually calls itself, and it's not a recursive function. <laughs> right, okay. And so, you know, if you have to write a, rec a recursive function, thinking about, okay, what is the base case, what is the recursive case, is, is often a really good starting point. 
Now, the, the big problem with factorial as a recursive function is, well, what if you want to uh, get the factorial of 1001? Uh, Python only lets you do 1000 recursive function calls before it causes a, a stack overflow. So if you have, you know, one, the, fib, the factorial of 1001 is 1001 times the factorial of 1000, and then that has to make a recursive function call, you're going to have, you know, a, a thousand and one recursive function calls, and that's going to cause a stack overflow. Even though, you know, if you just put this in a loop and, and calculate the factorial the iterative way, which uh, iterative meaning you're just using a loop, uh, yeah, Python can handle that easily. It takes, you know, uh, a millisecond to, to run that calculation. But with recursion, it's, it's, it's going to crash the program. And I feel like that's very uh, telling about recursion as a programming technique, where it seems like it has this mathematical elegance because you're defining factorial in terms of itself. Which, see, which seems really elegant and fancy, yeah. Yeah, but in reality, <laughs> it's completely impractical and will actually just crash your program. <gasps> and, and because, yeah, because this is a case where, yeah, this is a legitimate case where you really would want to have a um, a function that just does make more than a thousand function calls without returning. It's just calculating a very large factorial, but you don't want it to cause a stack overflow. And, and there's a, a whole other technique called tail call optimization, which is also called tail recursion or uh, tail call elimination. It has several different names. And that that's like sort of a hack that gets around this, this stack overflow part as well. But, you know, at that point, you're sort of, you're patching together all of these, these additional concepts to make up for your already complicated concept. And I think like, well, you know what, if you talk any beginner programmer, I was like, hey, write some code that calculates the factorial of a number, they would just say, okay, they assign a variable to one, and then they put a for loop, and then they just multiply that variable by increasing numbers. And then and then you have it, It's, it's really simple. But Recursion has a way of making simple things complicated. <laughs> yeah, totally. And and so the other thing is uh, is the Fibonacci sequence. This is where you have a sequence of numbers that begins with a one and one, or sometimes zero and one, and the next number in the sequence is the sum of the previous two numbers. So if you started off with one and one, well, the next number would be one plus one, so two, and then. So now your sequence is one, one, two, and the next number would be, well, the last two is just one and two, and that would be three. And then the last two then is two and three. So the next number is five. And then the next number is three plus five, and that's eight. This is, a, this is one of those things where it's a mathematical concept that's easy to grasp. And it also is used in a lot of illustrations. And uh, there's like something about like sunflower seed arrangements or pine cones have an arrangement that follows the Fibonacci sequence and, and other things like that. And so but if you think about the the Fibonacci sequence, like if you wanted to write a loop, again, doing this with a loop is really simple, but we could make it even more complicated with recursion. (laughs) If you want to find the nth Fibonacci number, that's just the sum of the nth minus one Fibonacci number plus the nth minus two Fibonacci number. So, you know, the the 10th Fibonacci number is just the sum of the ninth and eighth Fibonacci number. But this causes another problem if if you start thinking about it so that every call to the Fibonacci function that you've made results in two more calls to the Fibonacci function. And those two calls then result in four calls to the Fibonacci function. And those 
four calls result in eight more calls. And you have this exponentially growing or, or ge- geometrically growing yeah. number of function calls. Yeah, a loop to find the 50th Fibonacci number, that'll run in you know half a millisecond. But recursive Fibonacci function, if you tried to find the 50th Fibonacci number, that would take longer than the universe has existed to finish that calculation. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also another work around this because, you know, if you if you think about it, you're calculating the 10th Fibonacci number, then you have to call Fibonacci on nine and eight. But when you call Fibonacci on nine, you're you're getting the eight and seven Fibonacci numbers. But wait a second, you've already calculated like the eighth Fibonacci number. So there's no reason to redo that calculation. And so you can then create a cache of all of these results. And, and this is another thing that's often used in in dynamic programming. Uh, it's called memoization, uh, not memorization, but memoization, like a like writing a memo. It's even even more short term, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very fancy word for, hey, when you call this function with this argument, remember what that function returns. And so the next time that you call it, just don't bother doing the calculation, just return the result. And so you're taking up computer memory to save yourself on execution time. So it's a it's a trade-off between memory and uh, CPU power right there. But but again, this is like we're coming up with these hacks yeah. to solve something like, is is this actually useful? And and it's really telling that Fibonacci and Factorial are the you'll find these as the examples in every single recursion tutorial. They're like the first things that get thrown at you. Also, you would never want to actually use them in real world code because they just don't work. Well, yeah, they fall apart after, you know, when oh, you get into the the 20s or something pre- like that. Pretty quickly, numbers. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's sort of like, uh, like, I have invented this new computer. It just can't handle any numbers larger than 12. <laughs> like, yeah, those are our times well, with those ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you have to add single-digit numbers, though, it is so fast and great, let me tell you. <laughs> too funny you know this kind of gives recursion this reputation as like you have to be a super genius to understand it and and wield it properly and and really i i find it kind of tedious uh, more more than anything and, and not that useful and i thought i'm gonna write an entire book where i just point out how uh kind of awful recursion is but that's what i kind of thought about this is the, sort of this uh the previous book you had done we we actually we've talked about several books but the one i was thinking of is uh kind of beyond the oh, basics yeah beyond the basic stuff with python yeah how that one was kind of a, a bit of a an advice book in the sense that you were saying hey you know if you're going to approach python maybe you're kind of at this immediate level here's some advice here's some ways that you can approach things to kind of think of stuff and this is sort of a bit of an anti advice or at least uh, a bit of a cautionary tale of like Yes, this is important that you understand what this is because people talk about it all the time. But, <laughs> right. but yeah, there's all this sort of like, uh, you know, potential uh, messy baggage tied in with it. And then, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm programming. Is, but you do have some good advice too. Like, the, yeah. the again, the, the actual uses that are, are really good for recursion. Yeah. The programming world is full of people giving half remembered bits of bad advice <laughs> to other people and, and passing that off as knowledge. And, and remember, these, these are also, in a way, my opinion as well. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of functional programmers who, who are just 
they're already writing up their strongly worded DMs uh, to me right now <laughs> uh, because I'm I'm sort of bashing recursion. But yeah, recursion isn't all bad. It's just that I feel like it's overused in places where it doesn't need to be used. Because here's another thing that, and a lot of this stuff I had to figure out while I was writing this book. It wasn't necessarily things that my computer science professors pointed out to me, but there is literally absolutely nothing that a recursive algorithm can do that you can't do with a loop and a stack. Hmm. Because essentially what, what your recursive function is doing, it's using the call stack as a stack, as its, as its stack data structure. And it's running the function over and over again. So it's, it's sort of using the, the code and the function as a loop. But uh, really, every single thing that you can write as a recursive function, you can write iteratively just using a loop and a stack. And, and there are some recursive functions where you don't even need the stack and and I can go into tail call optimization and, and tail recursion later. But um, I feel like if you have a recursive function that doesn't even need a stack, this is a sign that you shouldn't be writing this recursively. You're just making this harder on yourself. Hmm. But I, I do want to go into the things that recursion is useful for. And, and I thought about it a lot. And I, I wanted to get it down to something really simple. And I thought, okay, Recursion is actually a pretty neat technique to use whenever your problem involves a tree-like structure and backtracking. So I can use like a maze-solving algorithm as an example. If you think of a maze as just a series of intersections where you... Uh, and, and there are some restrictions on like the maze can't have any loops in it, uh, some, other, uh, some other like minor restrictions. But for most mazes... A maze is really just you come to an intersection where there's two or more different paths that you can take and you just go down the first path and then you'll come to another intersection and you'll then have to pick a path there. And eventually, so that's that's essentially your recursive case right there. Your your recursive function is saying, hey, I'm at an intersection. Let's try each of these paths. And whenever you try a path, it just leads to another intersection. So, so you're sort of your recursive function would be calling itself there. And then the base case is when you eventually get to a dead end. So, hey, when you get to a dead end, just backtrack earlier to an intersection and then try another path from that intersection. And then if you've, if you continue doing this over and over again, what you'll find is that either you've tried all the paths from an intersection, in which case you should backtrack another level back to a previous intersection, or you'll eventually find the exit. And if there is no exit, you'll find that you have backtracked all the way back to the starting point and you've fully explored this. And if you can think of it as as a diagram where uh, you have uh, the intersections as a node and then there's just lines coming from each of these nodes to other intersections and then those intersections branch out into other nodes and then a, uh, a dead end would just be a node with no branching paths from that. It sort of forms a, a tree-like diagram. And so this is the tree-like structure right here. So I feel like a recursive way of, of solving this is actually pretty nice because uh, solving this with a loop and a stack, that's definitely possible, but it kind of gets a little bit confusing. The, I feel like the code would be a, a lot easier this way. It is useful for some applications. I, so I listened to the the functional programming episode with Bruce Eckel on, on the Real Python podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, and nice. Yeah. I, he, he talks a lot about that. Uh, I, I feel like I also never really got functional programming, 
But now, you know, learning about recursion, I, I can see like, oh, that's that's what they're sort of talking about. I'm I'm still not into functional programming. And and I can see why why languages like Haskell still haven't taken off in popularity. I mean, for me, I first learned about uh, Haskell, I think, in like the early 2000s. And every four or five years, I'll check in on it again, just to be like, hey, uh, are people actually using this language yet? <laughs> no? Okay, I'll check on you in five years then. And uh, that just doesn't happen. But there are a lot of functional programming concepts uh, that you can do in Python that are really handy. And I, I cover some of those in, in the book as well as uh, what chapter seven, I guess, is I go into memoization and, and dynamic programming. Mostly this book is is just like a bunch of the classic recursion examples. Yeah. yeah I was thinking about one of those um, as you're talking about that sort of maze solving one. You have an example in there, which I didn't get to dive too deep into, but it was the idea of sort of filling a space, like the the fill algorithm that a you know like a paint program would have. And and what I would think of that is like, okay, that's kind of like a maze that has no exit. You're basically trying every right. Block. <laughs> the, the point is, you just want to see every single hallway in the maze. Yeah, the quote unquote maze there. Um, yeah, so flood fill is is an earth thing where. Um, the code, the recursive code is actually, I feel like easier to understand, but because images, you know, you can have, you know, uh, 10 megapixel images or, or something like that, uh, you will likely cause a stack overflow if you try a recursive flood fill algorithm. This is, this is, uh, in a lot of like MS paint or Photoshop, this is the tool where you can like click on an area and it'll just fill in that area with color. Uh, that's the flood fill algorithm. And it, and it turns out that's, um, you don't strictly need a stack data structure. You can really have any data structure. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be solved with recursion. You could have a Python set, for example, to do that. But yeah, there's there's a lot of places. And, and this is why I say, like, you know, recursion is something that you will never need it, but everybody should know it because it does actually pop up in places. So I guess everybody should actually uh, you know it, um, <laughs> yeah. And but also it just gets overused, and so I think it gets a bad reputation there. And the other part that uh, recursion comes into, and uh, I don't go into this in the book because it's it's such a big topic on its own. But it uh, going into parsers and compilers. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to create your own programming language, this is sort of the starting point of that. So you could you could think of like a Python expression like two plus two. And so that's just a bunch of values and, and the plus operator. And that evaluates down to a single value for the integer value four. But, you know, an expression itself can contain other expressions. You could have two plus and then the parentheses, even this, this I don't know, three times five or, or whatever like that. And so these expressions contain other expressions. And so the way the computer science works out when you have programming languages there's there's a concept called like the grammar of a programming language and it forms an abstract yeah. syntax tree and you hear about all these concepts and it's it's really nice to learn about recursion because suddenly you realize like oh hey i've i've dealt with this before and and i feel like that's that's one of the great things about having a a formal computer science education is that you don't strictly need a cs degree to write programs that are very useful. But there there have been times where I, I sort of realized, like, actually, I, I wonder if I'm putting way more effort than required. And if I just knew some of these underlying theoretical concepts, it would make my life much, much easier. 
And and I feel like, yeah, a lot of people are, are sort of intimidated by computer science as a topic. And uh, mostly it's just tedious. It's it's it is sort of tricky. I don't want to take away from that. But mostly it's just like a lot of different little things to learn. But as you build up all these concepts, you can add them together and then you, you find yourself just much more effective as a software developer because of it. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It touches on a topic we're discussing this week, recursion and memoization. The course is titled Caching in Python with LRU Cache, and it's based on a real Python tutorial by Santiago Valderrama. And in the course, frequent co-host Christopher Trudeau is your instructor, and he shows you what caching strategies are available and how to implement them using Python decorators, what the LRU strategy is, and how it works, how to improve performance by caching with the LRU cache decorator, and how to expand its functionality and make it expire after a specific time. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn about the performance advantages you can achieve with the LRU cache decorator. Like most of the video courses on Real Python, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. And you get code examples for the techniques shown. And all course lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. Yeah, one of the things that kind of came up through me looking through your book and it brought up kind of conversations I've had in the past where I didn't per se stop the person and try to get a better understanding of the thing was uh, this concept of the tree structures that you're talking about uh, following that if it be a maze or a file system and and walking through and and that definitely made a lot of sense to me and then it you know kind of led to this thing called a acyclic graph or directed acyclic graph or DAG. Yeah. And and I hear a lot hear a lot of people talk about graph theory and this all this kind of like other sort of like higher level stuff. And it just felt like, you know, again, a moment for the monks to like, you know, <laughs> you, <laughs> right. you you may pass into the CS halls now, you know, because you understand yeah, this yeah. thing. And I'm like, oh actually this is okay, it's just trees and and understanding that trees kind of are sort of a one-way thing you know that's the idea that you you know you get to the end and you have to backtrack but i was like okay this is starting to kind of tie a lot of those things together which i really liked about the book it was really helping me with with a lot of those things right i i try to have uh, a focus on practical examples or at least running code and that's the other thing about this book is that it's it's actually not a python book yeah it's sort of a it's a general programming and computer science book, and I have all the code examples in both Python and JavaScript. It's very important for me that I have runnable code yeah. as the examples in all of this, because I feel like if you just talk about these abstract classes or abstract concepts, you know, the, the priest class of computer scientists rarely seem to find it necessary to explain like, oh, an example of this, of a, of a directed acyclic graph is... Uh, think of a maze and solving a maze. And you can show how any uh, maze is actually really just this graph structure. And we have recursive functions that can work on these graph structures. And so therefore, you can write a recursive algorithm to solve mazes. And, you know, once you once you put it into terms uh, that people can see and play around with, it becomes that much more understandable. 
You know, in, in a lot of these, uh, I've, I've started doing this in, in my books and tutorials. I've started using playing cards yeah. as a prop for explaining these things. And I wish a lot more instructors and, and computer science professors would do this because playing cards are cheap and they're familiar. And there are these things that you can you can hold them in your hand and move them around a table surface. And they have numbers on them. So they're in order and there's multiple suits. They're unique. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so for for sorting algorithms, I feel like everybody should always just use playing cards as a way uh, of running the algorithm with playing cards in their hand, because otherwise it's it's a bunch of abstract concepts and you don't necessarily know it. But also just for for drawing out diagrams, like a, a stack data structure is like a stack of playing cards. And in the stack, you can only access the data at the very top of the stack, which is, oh, you can only see the card on the top of the stack of playing cards. And you can also see, uh, you can add new cards to the top of stack and you can take cards off the top of the stack. And oh yeah, playing cards, are, this is like a, a practical tip to any ins instructor out there, or, or just if you're learning how to code on your own, playing cards are, are an excellent prop I've found. Yeah, totally. I, it makes me think about this guy creates some amazing sets of games. Uh, this guy, Zach Gage, mm -hmm. he's kind of known for making some different, you know, solitaire games like flip flop solitaire, but he, he just came out with like a new game called not words, like, like tied in a knot K N O T. Oh, okay. It's a fun little, you know, kind of iPhone game in the sort of wordle era of <laughs> games. <laughs> but he talked on a podcast, heard him, you know, speaking about that he would never go to like immediately start programming something. He would, you know, break out a deck of cards and, or, you know, get physical things on a tabletop and, and try this out in like a physical space. And I feel like you do that a lot too. Cause like a lot of your examples are, you know, a little simpler, you know, you can maybe hold them in your head mm -hmm. as you're kind of programming them in. And, and I, I really appreciate that. And this, you know, they're definitely the, the examples in this book are you know included in that that you can kind of see them and then you you are also early in the book showing the stacks <laughs> and kind of like you know that visualization helped me uh, kind of grasp the idea again uh, kind of quickly and I, I immediately thought to myself was like well you know what if it wasn't holding all those in memory you know and that kind of led me to the idea of this whole tail call thing and and then you know eventually learning that that's not something that's you know, appropriate in Python that they decided that we're not going to do that. And so it was just, I don't know, I, I was, I felt like I was being led through it, even though I haven't quite gotten through the entire book. It's been really useful that way. Yeah, there's, and it's just that computer science is, is so abstract. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's practical because we use computers all the time, but it's also has that sort of mathematical abstractness. And it's, you know, once you understand it, then of course it's it's easy, and and I feel like this is why recursion or just programming in general is, is so hard to teach, is because you know once you understand it, you're like, oh, okay, and then you want to just sort of uh, introduce other people to all these huge concepts um, that just fly over their head. There is uh, right. There is a, a oh I, I can enter into the controversial opinion uh, section of the of the podcast episode right now and, and oh, more possibly make uh, <laughs> yeah uh, so there is a book called the little schemer that I I believe came out in the in the 1980s uh, written by a, a couple of MIT professors and this book uh, teaches uh, scheme the this uh, functional programming language 
And it starts with recursion. <laughs> you you don't even really use loops in it. And there, there's like 5% of the population that really loves manipulating abstract symbols according to arbitrary logical rules for the sake of manipulating abstract symbols according to arbitrary logical rules. It's it's just like a, a fun thing. And, and my brain is, is kind of like that. But for the rest of of society, people are just going to look at that and just be kind of confused. And and I feel like a lot of people who really love this book, they kind of get it. And then they're like, oh, wow, this book is so amazing. It's great. It, it really it teaches you how to think and, and points out all these ideas. But then the vast majority of people kind of read this. And, and I really worry that they're going to say, well, I don't get it. I guess I'm just dumb, too dumb to program. And then they sort of just give up on it. And so right. I wanted this book to sort of be the counter to that of, no, it's there's just all these tiny little concepts. And I want to give demonstrations and examples of, of all of these step by step and have actual, not just descriptions of algorithms, but actual runnable code. Yeah. You can type it in. You can run it under a debugger one line at a time and, and really see how that works. So uh, The Little Schemer is a book that is very much beloved by a lot of computer scientists or, or so, the sorts of people who like work at Google because they have PhDs in, in whatever, and, and they're just really used to dealing with abstract concepts. But uh, I, I gave it a one-star review on Amazon. <laughs> I, I, I was just so like, after, after a while, I, I got through about three-fourths of it and I just thought, like, oh, there's, this book really needed an editor. And it's it's mostly I'm, I'm just concerned that a lot of people read this book. And it has these cute uh, drawings of cartoon elephants on it. And it's like, oh, this book seems like it should be for kids or something really easy. It has cute little elephants in it. But uh, I don't understand it at all. And I worry that um, it's... It's the sort of book that a computer science professor thinks is a great book for beginners rather than a book that beginners think is a good book for beginners. Yeah. My my <laughs> other uh my other controversial opinion on on recursion uh I think that tail recursion should never be used. I like recursion I say like oh it's it's often overused uh, but recursion is has its uses and it's great for some things. I think tail recursion should never be used. If you're finding yourself using tail recursion, uh, you've made a mistake and you should stop using recursion and just use a loop instead. Uh, and this, this is something that I, I came upon on my own and I, I never realized how deficient my, my education on recursion from my computer science degree really was because, you know, they, they talk about, oh, here's, here's tail call optimization or, or tail recursion uh, as it's called. And so, you know, if we go back to that factorial problem, can't get the factorial of even small numbers like, you know, uh, 2000 or 1001 because you'll cause a stack overflow. And the way you get rid of that is is with tail call optimization, which is essentially just uh, forgetting. It's, it's removing things from the call stack because it turns out your algorithm doesn't actually need that. So you, if we go back even further to like function A calls function B calls function C, and it keeps track of how to backtrack, you know, from C to B and then from B to A. With it keeps track of that with the call stack. Uh, for factorial, you know, if it turns out if you're if the last thing that your recursive function does is call itself and then return that result, you don't actually really need to backtrack to the previous 
calls of of the recursive function because there's nothing for it to do after the recursive function call. I, I realize this is going to be like kind of hard to to imagine, but but essentially, uh, you can use tail call optimization when your when your recursive function doesn't actually need the call stack for anything. And and remember, recursion is just using a loop and a stack. But tail call uh, tail recursion is a loop and a stack without the stack. So you should just use the loop. And <laughs> yeah. and I've I've looked at this and and again it's it's one of those things where it's a it's a clever hack to get uh, your recursive function to to work on real world computers and, and things like that. But and so it makes people feel really smart to to do this because it's a clever optimization. But it's an optimization that you you don't really need it in the first place. Uh, so it's just more confusing and convoluted code. Uh, and and I thought about it a long time and I thought, yeah, yeah, you you actually never need to use this. And it turns out, I think this is actually not uh, a controversial statement because uh, Python, the Python interpreter, the C Python interpreter specifically, the one that you download from python.org, that does not implement uh, tail call optimization. So even if you wrote your code in a way to do this, it really depends on the compiler or the interpreter detecting this and then applying this optimization behind the scenes to prevent stack overflows. And uh, Python's interpreter doesn't do this at all. And, and Guido has written a couple blog posts about why this is. He says that it really interferes with the the traceback messages that appear uh, when you're debugging. Yeah, but I looked into this, and I think every major JavaScript interpreter also doesn't have this as an optimization. If you open up your browser's uh, debugging tools and you just write a bit of JavaScript code where you have you know just a function that calls itself, you know this this shortest recursive function example, uh, or or rather you just write a a factorial uh, recursive factorial function that also has tail call optimization it's going to crash in a in a stack overflow because that javascript interpreter doesn't actually use this and and i think also the latest versions of the java compiler also don't have tail call optimization so like python and javascript and java purposefully don't implement this and, and i kind of realized like yeah it is sort of a sign that uh, this is not actually a technique that you should use. <laughs> of course, in, in functional programming languages, where essentially you don't even have loops, you just use recursive function calls as your loop, tail call optimization is is very much necessary in that. But also, I feel like, you know, this is a reason why nobody really likes to use functional programming languages, or, or rather why they're not as uh, they don't have that mainstream popularity. Because it's it's actually a uh, uh, something that's it's it just makes your code more complicated and you there's easier ways to do it so why not do it the easier way yeah when you were thinking about writing this book were these some of the things that you were most excited to, to write about i mean i originally thought that this would be a a super short book i i approached no starch press with the idea originally of like hey what if we just did like a, a 70 page or a 100 page book it's really short. Yeah. Uh, I just, because, you know, recursion, how much could I possibly talk about that? But, uh, and then it, it just kind of grew into a, a regular sized book. And <laughs> and I started looking at all these sort of related concepts uh, like tail recursion and, uh, and stack overflows and memoization. And that led me to dynamic programming, uh, which I, I realized uh, dynamic programming itself, it, it sounds very fancy. Uh, apparently, the name came about, I, I forget the 
the name of the computer scientist, Bell, I think. But uh, anyway, he basically wanted to get funding from the Department of Defense back in the 40s or 50s or, or whenever. But one of the administrators just really hated spending money on research. And what he wanted to do was essentially just programming research. And so instead, he just said, well, it's a, it's dynamic programming, which is sort of a meaningless name. Huh. Um, but, uh, and, and that's what it came from. And I always thought like, oh yeah, what exactly is dynamic programming? Because, uh, you know, it's, it's also one of these terms that I kept hearing all the time and it seemed to use recursive algorithms as part of it. And, uh, it took me a long time to finally boil it down to a really simple sentence that I could never find in any dynamic programming tutorial. And that it's okay. So dynamic programming is it's the set of programming problems where you want to uh, use recursion, but also you have you want to use recursion to break a, your problem up into similar, smaller problems. But there's also a lot of overlap between these problems. And so Fibonacci is an example of this. You know, if you want to find the tenth Fibonacci number, you have to find the ninth and eighth Fibonacci number. And to find the ninth Fibonacci number, you have to find the eighth and seventh Fibonacci number. Well, you're you're recalculating the eighth Fibonacci number multiple times. So there's overlap right there in your recursive algorithm. And the way around this is just using memoization. And so really, dynamic programming is just recursion and memoization, uh, because you have these overlapping sub problems. And uh, I, I could never just find that sentence in any of these tutorials on, on dynamic programming. And, and so I thought like, oh, well, okay, yeah, if you it took a long time for me to figure this out as like, oh, this thing is actually just this other simple concept. And and uh, and that's why this book uh, is something I've been working on for about four years. <laughs> <laughs> took you on several journeys, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how much effort it takes to simplify concepts and kind of show that like, oh, you know, it's, it's really easy to give it an intimidating reputation that of this like mysterious technical advanced topic yeah it, it does sort of boil down to uh to much simpler things i i also found out this is another weird thing and and also why i say that a lot of programming is just people repeating the wrong advice that they heard from other people you'll often hear about top down recursion and bottom up recursion hmm. and i've realized that actually there's no such thing these these are misnomers what people actually mean is top-down dynamic programming and bottom-up dynamic programming. The idea is, um, you know, uh, so the Fibonacci algorithm is an example of top-down, where you start with, uh, hey, I, I want to find the 10th Fibonacci number. Well, now I have to break that up into smaller problems of the 9th and 8th Fibonacci numbers. You have to find those, and then you can break those up into smaller problems. And so that's sort of like the top-down approach. You start with the result that you want, and you go down to smaller and smaller problems until you've, you've solved the base case, at which then you can sort of reconstruct the, the total complete solution. And bottom-up, so a lot of, uh, if you think about it, all recursion is top-down recursion. The whole idea of, of bottom-up dynamic programming is sort of the other half of, of dynamic programming problems where you start with like the small cases. And so this would sort of be like, well, let's just start with one and one, the first two Fibonacci numbers. Uh, we add those together to get the next Fibonacci number two. And so you start at the small cases and then build your way up. So this is really bottom-up dynamic programming. And, and uh, there's another technique in bottom-up 
uh, dynamic programming, which is called tabulation, which is sort of like another optimization to to do this. But but really, um, the point that I want to make is that there's no such thing as top down recursion or bottom up recursion because all recursion is top down. And whenever I actually started looking for examples of bottom up recursion, uh, people would would show this sort of starting from the base cases and building up. But I noticed their actual code doesn't have any recursive function calls. <laughs> there's there's no recursive function. So how can it be recursion? And then I, I had to look more as like, oh, they're actually just getting these terms mixed up. And nobody's really pointing out that this is a really common misconception that people are making. And I feel like there's so many of these, you know, tiny misunderstandings of when it comes to recursion. And that's why people think of it as such a difficult thing. It's, it's not that it's a very, uh, it's like arcane, super genius topic. It's just mostly that it's really poorly taught. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's too funny. When you're writing the book and you were coming up with the examples, was it difficult doing the sort of context switching between the Python and the JavaScript? Did you find that difficult at all? Uh, not really. I I also tried to really keep the code as simple as possible. Like there are times where, you know, I can, and I feel like this is a common thing with a lot of my books. If there's a simple way to do it and a complicated, but, you know, elegant way of doing it, I'm going to, I'm going to pick the simple way of doing it. You know, every programming language has variables and every programming language has functions and arrays or lists. And so for the most part, all of these examples are sort of one-to-one. You can look at this line of code and it ha- its equivalent in Python or JavaScript is this line of code. I did have this one idea for a programming book that is sort of like a Rosetta Stone of Python and JavaScript uh, because those are hmm. those are two uh, of the most popular programming languages out there, and so I figured like lots of people are are learning how to program in Python as their first language. A lot of people are learning how to program in JavaScript as their first programming language, and you, it's really good to learn multiple programming languages because it's it's sort of like traveling abroad. You you sort of realize that all the things that that your home country and your home culture, uh, the way things that you do it isn't how other people do it. So you travel not really to learn about other countries, but to learn more about your own country. Yeah. And the same thing with programming languages. There's a lot of things uh, that Python and JavaScript do that uh, you sort of take for granted, but then you realize, oh, programming languages don't have to be designed that way. So that's kind of nice. But I, I really just stick to like the simple concepts. Mostly, I just didn't want uh, to to restrict the book's audience to people who who know Python. So uh, for, for any JavaScript programmers who are listening to the real Python podcast <laughs> and yeah. who don't know Python, this this is also a, uh, a book that has uh, code examples for you. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Do you, not to spill the beans on anything, but do you have any projects that you're looking at working on next? Oh, man. <laughs> I, I always have about like five or six uh, book project ideas. Okay. <laughs> uh, so like this Rosetta Stone kind of book was one of them. I, I had an idea for I might have talked about this on a previous show. Uh, a lot of times my friends will tell me like, uh, like, yeah, Al, you've been talking about this idea for years now. And I eventually get done with them. It, it took me four years to do the recursion book, but I finally did get it done. Yeah. Like an idea of a programming book that teaches you uh, programming and Python that doesn't really use words. It just uses illustrations in the way that in Ikea, 
instruction manual or a, a Lego instruction manual can teach you how to build a thing. <laughs> all right. And I have no idea how I can do this or, or convey all of these topics. But I kind of figured it would be nice because then you don't need to understand English in, in order to program yeah. it. It's, it's instantly And localization will be much yeah. easier. <laughs> That'd be great. And also I figured just I'd learn a lot about how to teach concepts that way. But um, that might be a, a, a too esoteric. Um, I am working uh, right now also on a book that is just sort of a bunch of very gentle programming exercises. There's There's a lot of these websites like hacker rank leap coder whatever thing and and i feel like sure. those are great if, if you really want to challenge yourself but for people who are just starting out i wanted to gather up like all the really really basic examples the one that i always mention is uh, converting between fahrenheit and celsius yeah this is sort of a function that every programmer has written at some point uh because it's it's a very common exercise and i just wanted to gather up uh 42 of these exercises into uh, a book that uh, I'm, I'm publishing it as sort of a 99 cent ebook, mm. but it'll also be freely available under a Creative Commons license on my inventwithpython.com website. And so that that's a project that I'm I'm wrapping up right now. But oh, cool! Just uh, so many things I've I've been neglecting. PyAutoGUI, which is a, a Python module that can let your Python programs control the mouse and keyboard for uh, doing oh, yeah. automation. There's there's an entire field called RPA, Robotic Process Automation, which does not actually involve robots. Or or when they say robots, they mean more like bots. And, and the more I look into it, the more I realize, oh, it's just simple scripts that click on things and type things for you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's, it is fun. Mostly it's just... Uh, Usually the project that I'm working on leads to to other projects. And, and I had a lot of fun with the uh, the projects in in this recursion book as well. The the second part of the book is is sort of more complete, substantial programs that do something. So there's one that generates a maze. Uh, there's another that can solve those 15 tile puzzles. They're, they're usually like the four by four tiles and then one tile is missing. So you can slide them around and you want to yeah. slide them back into order. I don't think I've ever... Either them being numbers or them being like a picture yeah. or something like that. Yeah, I don't think I've yeah. ever actually solved them. But, you know, if, if you think about it, it's analogous to solving a maze in that where the blank tile is and the setup of the of the board is sort of your intersection. And the path that you can go down is, well, do you want to slide the tile left or right or up or down? And then that just leads to another intersection where you have to decide which tile you want to slide. And then you want to backtrack, you know, if eventually you, you f figure like, okay, this is not the, the way to solve this. You can backtrack to earlier intersections by undoing the slide. So, you know, if you slid it to the left, you can undo that by sliding it to the right. And, and so then that's like, oh, you can make a directed acyclic graph out of this, which means that you can write a recursive function to solve it. And so that was actually a lot of fun. And, and I came upon like, some other issues uh, that you have to like solve in order to write this. But yeah, the, the complete code in, in Python and JavaScript is in this book. And then there's also just a, a fractal art maker where uh, you can use Python's turtle library, which allows you to just make these little line drawings and, and programmatically generated art. And I set it up so that you can um, just play around with some configurations and you can take a basic triangle shape and then specify all these recursive call parameters to create just a huge variety of, of of fractal images and 
most of them just kind of look weird or, or nonsensical or just uninteresting, but some of them are actually are pretty nice. Yeah. Fractals are fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, and then the very last project is, um, there's a thing called the Drost effect. I'm not even sure if I'm, I had never heard the name of it. Yeah. I thought that was cool. Yeah. yeah. Every, everybody knows it, but they don't know the name of it. It's a, uh, if you've ever seen an illustration or a drawing that contains itself. And so the name comes from, I think this Dutch hot chocolate powder, where the uh, the can that it came in featured uh, a picture of this nurse holding a tray of hot chocolate and a can of of the hot chocolate uh, powder, and so on that can was also that same nurse holding a tray, including the can, and so it has the same recursive image. So I using the uh, uh, pill uh, pillow, the Python image library, you can take any image and just draw magenta pixels over an area inside that image. And this program will then create recursively keep filling in that magenta area with the image itself. But of course, that smaller image will have its own magenta area. And so it just recursively calls itself on that. So you can sort of create these interesting little like mirror into mirror kind of uh, images with any photo that that you have. And so I, I thought that was uh, pretty nice. And it it turned out there were like a few different issues I had to I had to solve, but uh, I came up with a Python uh, program that uh, can generate those fairly easily, and and it's nice. And it's like, oh, okay, you just you just have to figure out all the hard parts, <laughs> and then uh, explain them. And, and I feel like it's a lot easier once you see the code in front of you. You can see like, oh, I understand how this is how this is working now. Yeah, I I went and brought up that book the. The little schemer book has one on it, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the elephant is holding the book, and the, of course, the book has the picture right. of the elephant with the, you know, going on and on. Yeah, and on when, it, so. when it came to the, uh, the cover design of this book, I, I, I also have that where it's, it's a picture of a robot reading a book. And then, of course, the book is the book itself. So there's a robot on the co- on that cover reading a book <laughs> right. over and over again. And yeah. I felt like I can't not have that as the cover. Yeah, I got to do of it. this book. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's <laughs> this this book was pretty exhausting to write, but it's it's now done. It's coming out on Amazon in in August, but. Uh, you can actually get the early access ebook from from No Starch, and and I always recommend people buy the book from the publisher directly uh, because you get those free ebooks as well. And and I believe the the early access ebook has all the content of the main book. I feel like just because it's it's not yet officially released, uh, they still call it early access, but it's essentially the the full book. And and you'll also get the full book when you uh, when that comes out as well if you buy the early access one. Nice. I think that takes us to the weekly questions I have. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. So what's something that you're excited about in the world of Python since we last talked? <laughs> um, wow. So uh, Textual is is sort of a project that I've been following. Yeah. Um, and Will McGugan. Yes, exactly. A lot of that work. And so uh, and just the, the term uh, TUI for uh, text user interface, as opposed to like GUI, the graphical user interface. And so you know, this is for applications that have windows and buttons and checkboxes and things like that. You know, but in the before times, uh, before we had, you know, Windows and Macs, we all just had the command line. But we, we also, you know, using text characters to draw lines, we could sort of create these very primitive looking graphical user interfaces that way. 
it's it's sort of like zip discs. I feel like there there's like this brief moment where they did make a lot of sense. Yeah, between like <laughs> small floppy disks and then burnable CDs, but then they they were quickly sort of like uh, forced out and and no longer used. But uh, TUIs are are a thing, and maybe it's just because I'm old and nostalgic. But uh, I do like the simplicity of them, and they they do offer sort of even though they they look very basic it's it's a lot easier to to program and deal with them which is great if you just have very simple programming tools that you're creating for yourself or or for a few others and instead of a fully polished product it's it's sort of like how minecraft has that very retro aesthetic but at the same time it's a, it's really easy to build things in minecraft because there's just discrete blocks that you play with it's it's not like a full cad tool yeah. or or some 3d modeling program like blender that you have to learn and, and that's really intimidating. It's it's really easy just to play around with blocks. And I feel like the same way uh with the the textual uh module. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I I've, I've only dived in a little bit into like the Hello World examples of it, but uh I'm really excited to to get more involved in that. And and also just the Beware project for putting Python on mobile devices. Yeah. It's something that I've been looking at for, for quite a while now. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And what what your conversation about that or your talk about that made me think about is just the idea of creative restraints. There's so many or constraints. Yes. Having constraints is always kind of nice in the sense that when there's a million possibilities of a way of doing something, you just sort of can have that sort of overwhelming amount of choices. And it's nice to say, let's just learn how to do it this way yeah. <laughs> and and dive into it, which is really slick. Yeah, so. it, it really cuts down on, on just the, the possibilities that can really paralyze you. Yeah, definitely. Get something done. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so uh, uh, we actually uh, met up at, at PyCon this year, and I think the big news uh, from that was Python in the browser. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I, I feel like a lot of people are also very excited about. Uh, the the presenters did did stress like this is sort of an alpha release or or something but but i i'm also excited about the idea of of python running in the browser yeah definitely i'm i'm keep playing with it a little bit i'm actually thinking about talking with russell from beware cuz he's kind of indirectly connected in some ways you know he got funding through uh, anaconda yeah yeah anaconda is helping McGee. him yeah. his project yeah and so i'd like to kind of hear a little bit about that because last time i talked to him was over two years ago now about just kind of where beware was and the you know kind of looking for help and so forth and so yeah I'm, I'm glad to hear that you know he's got some funding to kind of keep working on the project but also that there's some nice tools that can kind of be generated there's you know this idea of you know writing python once and deploying everywhere is definitely the web is part of that so that's great yeah i mean python is is such a great great language and an accessible language that i i really want to see it being used in in more and more domains and sort of like the browser and mobile devices are two areas that python hasn't conquered yet so uh, i'm definitely excited about any gains that python can make there <laughs> yeah definitely Cool. So what's something that you want to learn next? This doesn't have to be Python or even programming related. Oh, man. It's it's always programming <laughs> related. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, so this is partially programming related. There's an idea that I've been kicking around my head uh, for a while. One, one talk I saw at PyCon this year actually renewed uh, my interest in it. But um, 
what one of my friends pointed out to me is that all of my hobbies have something in common and that's that they're all really cheap. So like writing software is something that like, ah, oh, you can just use a, a free Python tool and like the laptop that I already have. And I, you know, going for walks or like playing Pokemon Go or something like, yeah, that's that's all free and cheap. You don't have to like fly out anywhere or you don't have to buy like yeah, yeah. a lathe or <laughs> yeah. expensive equipment and, and materials and things like that. But one of my cheap hobbies is origami. Oh, okay. And and it's it's great to just follow along with YouTube videos uh, and, and learn some other folds like that. Because, you know, when I was a kid, there was just origami books and yeah. there would always be a part where I follow the diagrams and you know, I get stuck at one point <laughs> and I, I don't have, you know, a fox or a crane right. or whatever. I, I just have a, a mishmash of folds or something like that. So the videos are kind of nice because you can actually see the entire process. Yeah, yeah. But one bad thing about the videos is that, you know, there's always these like big meaty hands in the way of it <laughs> or they'll nice. they'll like move a little too fast on some parts. So I thought it'd be great if I could um, use sort of like cloth simulation algorithms except instead of cloth just makes it much more rigid like paper and then simulate hmm. folds on that. And then, so it's essentially like, I want to write this software where you can simulate folds and record uh, the movement of the paper as you fold it. So there's lots of other issues that come up with this, but then you could play it back and view it from any angle yeah. and essentially have these, uh, have these instructive interactive uh, websites or, or applications that show you how to fold all of these different things. I always thought that was great. There was there was this one talk at PyCon that went into Blender, the the 3D modeling software, yeah, and and having all these like constraint satisfaction problems, which is sort of related to uh, what I want to do here. And, and I thought like, oh, hey, I I should start looking into how to do all of this again. So this sort of like origami folding idea. Yeah, that sounds really fun. Yeah, it's it's probably an idea I had. And any particular channels on YouTube you want to oh, share? Oh, uh, there's a bunch of them. I think. Uh, Joe Nakashima, hopefully I'm, I'm, I got that name right. But uh, generally, if uh, you'll, you'll, you know, just search for origami and tutorial or something on, on YouTube or any video site, uh, there's a lot of great people who, who have just, you know, pretty simple uh, folds. Generally, I, I feel like any fold, any um, origami model that you're trying to fold that's if the video is longer than 20 minutes it might be a bit too much but yeah you know anywhere from like zero to 20 minutes and usually i'll set aside an hour when i'm first learning it because i'm constantly pausing the video and, and rewinding a little bit just to to watch it <laughs> yeah i bet yeah and the scorpion one i'm looking at right now <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's one of those things where um i i guess it, it's sort of the opposite of computer programming because learning all these cool programming things, especially if you want to do like machine learning or, or AI, and it requires like massive data centers to just crunch uh, through all these numbers. You know, that's something that we can only do here in the 21st century. But with origami, it feels like there's something nice that I could go back a thousand years and all I need is a square sheet of paper and I could recreate the most complicated uh, origami models if I if I just knew how to fold it, it's it's something that doesn't really re require like technology, just knowledge and and a little bit of insight. And yeah, yeah. There's something I I really like about that. Also, paper is cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, those are the types of hobbies <laughs> that I that I generally like. <laughs> That's cool. 
So what's the best way that people can follow the things that you do online? Uh, so my website is inventwithpython.com. Uh, it's where I publish all of my my Python uh, programming books, and they're all freely available under a Creative Commons license. So you can read the entire book for free online. There's also links to the uh, to the publisher's site where if you want to buy a, a nice print book or or a much better formatted ebook, you can you can buy it there. And from there, you know, I have links to uh, sort of the occasional YouTube video that I'll create or uh, online courses that I've also created. But um, yeah, inventwithpython.com is sort of where people can find me online. That's great. Well, Al, thanks so much for coming on the show again. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is a kind of a hard concept to to relate uh, just in the audio only format. (laughs) But uh, hopefully, uh, you know, I've I've at least sparked an interest for people to to learn more yeah yeah and not be scared off as as well it definitely (laughs) you definitely answered some more of my questions so that's great thanks a lot yeah thank you i want to thank al swigert for coming on the show again and i want to thank you for listening to the real python podcast make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player and if you see a subscribe button somewhere Remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.